comes to doing the same old tired things, the same old same tired things when it comes to reaching people for Christ and winning them to the kingdom, we got to stop it. This stuff, I mean, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to cater to them, you got to do this. No, you don't. No, you don't. The first step was what? First step was, Jesus said what? From, from out among all of his disciples, he chose 12 with selection. And he picked 12 men because they were what? Fat, faithful, available, and teachable. Then the second thing was, is, is in 28, uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he said, I will be with you always. So you spend time with them. You spend a good quality, one or two or three hours a week with them, lead, either leading them to Christ or after they get saved, discipling them with the Bible and the Word of God. And then the third thing was consecration, where Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you. And then last week we talked about impartation, where Jesus breathed on them and said, receive ye what? Receive ye the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, in John twenty twenty two. And so today, so now we've gone from selection to spending time with them, to getting a commitment from them, to, to giving yourself away. And what a challenge that is to, to today is going to be demonstration. You are going to show them how to be a Christian. And Jesus did this with his disciples. He has just washed his disciples' feet. We pick up with verse 13. You call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And here's verse 15. This is the key. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happier you if you do them. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So Trevor had you do a very simple little exercise for our, our welcoming and our welcome time and greeting session. And it was simply this. A, are you a person who wants to be told how to do something? Or B, do you want somebody to show you how to do it? Or C, and that's the best option of all, both. Both. But don't just tell me. Show me. And there's three areas today that Jesus literally had to show his disciples what to do and how to do it. In Sunday night Bible study, we just came out of the study of the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus literally taught and showed his disciples, one, how to pray. Jesus knew prayer is an indispensable action that we must take. It must become part of our life. We've got to have a life of prayer. I mean... Beyond what we do here on Wednesday nights, we, this, this is a 168 proposition. This is a 24-7, the life of prayer. And Jesus didn't force them to pray. He just prayed in front of them. Again and again and again and again, he would pray. Then finally they looked at Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, and they looked at Jesus and they said to him, Lord, will you teach us how to pray? And Jesus, sure, sure, I'll, I'll teach you how to pray. You pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now let me say something to y'all. 
This is not a prayer that you are to memorize and be a remote prayer and the same prayer you pray over and over and over and over. Dr. Bob Coleman, who wrote the original book, Master Plan of Evangelism, was one of my seminary professors. And he used to say this a lot. He'd say, everybody in church has got one little memorized prayer, the same one they pray over and over and over. He said, until they get rid of that memorized prayer, they're not ever going to really know how to pray. Jesus didn't give us this prayer, give his disciples this prayer to use every time. In fact, he was teaching them, don't pray like the, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who get up and do these long cantations in public. Oh, watch me. I'm so holy. I'm so wonderful. Listen to me. And then they pray for 30 minutes. Have y'all ever in a church service listened to somebody pray for 30 minutes? I did. I had this guy, he was in his 70s in a church down there near Owensboro, and he thought he was called pastor of that church. The problem was every time he tried to get that church, he only got 30% of the vote. That church didn't want him as pastor. I said, well, if you're called and you're ordained, go somewhere else. There are other churches that need you. Nope, it's going to be this church. No, it will never be this church. So one Sunday morning, I made a mistake of calling on him to close the service in prayer. It was 12 noon. I went to the back door like I always do. That man, did. he started praying at 12 noon. And he got done about 12.35. Basically what he did was he preached a sermon. His granddaughters, who were 17 and 18 at the time, came out the back door, shook my hand and looked at me and said, Brother Bob, we love you, but if you ever call on Paul to pray in church again, we're going to kill you. Hmm. I guess they were in the 70% vote. <laughs> oh, he was praying down the amber waves of green. I'm not dogging him, but Jesus said, hey. And in, in, in four short verses, he, he prayed the most loaded prayer. What Jesus was teaching them was a pattern of prayer. You always start out prayer with praise. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed glory be, honor be to thy name. You always start a worship service out with praise. Up, up, up be. You always start out a prayer with praise. Because guess what? God already knows what you need before you even ask for it. God ain't stupid. He's omniscient. He knows. He's, he, if he could forget anything, he would forget more than all of us know together. But he can't forget, so there we go. He's not me. <laughs> I can't tell you all how many times this week I lost my badge that I have to have to get in the building where I work. And I wasn't being nice. I was, I was being nice toward Bethany and, and, and Margo, but I was being pretty hard on me. Then I went to the doctor Thursday, and he told me exactly what I knew she was going to say. Uh, you need a hip replacement surgery. Okay, see you next summer. I ain't got six weeks time at my new job to take off for six weeks to do a hip replacement surgery. So what do you recommend? Well, about 500 milligrams. Well, anyway, that's, that's a rabbit down that path. Jesus taught them how to pray. Now, don't you know some of the disciples were sitting there thinking, well, now, Jesus, come on. Don't talk down to us. We are learned men. 
We are smart people. You literally are going to put words in our mouth? Yeah. Why? Because prayer is too important to the kingdom of heaven and people being saved and people being healed. You know, I, I often say when churches quit growing is when the prayer list and the prayer time gets out of whack. It becomes a, a hypochondriac prayer list instead of a lost prayer list. It's got to be balanced. It's got to be bold. Jesus told us to pray for the sick. In fact, he told us to go get the anointing oil and go uh, anoint their head with oil and lay hands on them. But when that's all our prayer list reflects, is we become hypochondriacs. Pray for old Uncle Charlie. He stumped his toe. Yeah, but Uncle Charlie's lost. Don't you think we need to pray for his soul? Because where he's going, a stumped toe is going to be the least of his problems. Our Father which art in heaven, praise, praise, praise. You may not ever get around to asking Jesus for a thing. You might get into such a prayer and praise time and, and shouting and lifting your hands up and singing songs and you know what have you not. Uh, Mark always knows when I'm in my praise time or my prayer time is when I sit in the chair and I start, man, I hit Alexa up and start playing them upbeat Christian contemporary praise songs. Man, I start praising and I'm just sitting there just enjoying that. And sometimes that's as far as I get because God already knows who I need to pray for. He already knows who's lost. He already knows who needs to come to Jesus. The second part of that, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We don't pray to get our will done on earth. We pray for God's will to be done on earth. And guess what? Most times, that's a conflict. That's a boom, boom, boom. So forget about your will and pray for His will to be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah, it's important that we pray for hungry people and that we feed them. It's also important to pray for forgiveness and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How dare us go to God and say, forgive me when we're not forgiving other people around us. Jesus literally taught us. I'm going to hit that at the end of the sermon. And then the last part is, just don't, just, just take on the devil. The devil's not all powerful. Jesus is. Resist evil. Then the second thing Jesus taught his disciples, and it came from Psalm 119, 105, which we all know from Bible school. If you don't know this verse from Bible school, come on, seriously? Thy word, thy word, O God, I will make it a light unto what? A lamp, a what? Unto what? Now, come on, give it, give it to me. A lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Any of y'all ever gone out in the wintertime when it's just so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face? How many of y'all taking a flashlight with you? You better go into chicken houses at 4 or 5 in the morning. You better have a flashlight or at least have the, the four-wheeler with the lights on or the truck lights on or something. Farmers used to not have those luxuries. Man, they'd take flashlight. Isn't it nice to have a flashlight when you're outside in the dark? That's what the Word of God is. And Jesus said, teach them how to study the Word of God. 
Sit down with them. Most people say, I would read the Bible, but it's boring because I don't know how to study and read the Bible. I preached an old sermon. I've taught this church several times. Inductive Bible study method. You take a portion of Scripture. You take something as simple as Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five, And then you look at the 34 verses preceding that verse and the verses after it. And then you sit out the piece of paper and you write out five W questions. What? What, is it, what are these verses about? Who? Who's involved in these verses? Very important. If it's Pharisees and Sadducees or if it's believers or if it's babies or if it's the devil. Who? Where? Y'all think they interpret the Bible differently in the West End of Louisville than we do down here in Battletown? You bet. What is the difference? Culture. We all like to put our culture on it. Why? Who, what, where, when, why? And then the last one is an H. How? How do I now take this and incorporate this into my life? Get them started where? I've already shared this with Trevor. You get a new Christian started in the Bible study and you tell them go straight through the Bible and they start in Genesis, a few chapters later they're going to be buzzing going, beget, 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 beget. Can't even read half the names. Start them in the Gospel of John. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Get them right there. Jesus is the Word. The Gospel of John. If any, any new Christian ever asks you, where should I start reading the Bible? John, John, John. Gospel of John. Yeah, always the Gospel of John. The Word. So the second part, Jesus showed his, this demonstrated. First was prayer. Second was the Bible, the Word of God, Bible study. And don't bring new baby Christians into one of these Bible studies in the church that's way up here. Sit down with them at Dairy Queen, buy their breakfast on Saturday morning, and just go through the elements, go through the baby facts, go through the go through the elementary stuff. They're not ready for high school, college, or graduate stuff. Then the last part was what? Soul winning. And folks, do you know that one and two lead to three because the most important thing in Jesus' life, and he made it well known all the time, was soul winning. You learn to pray to pray for who? The lost. You learn and then you take them and you teach them the Bible. So why? So that after they're saved, that you, they, they can hold the devil off because he's going to be on full attack because he can't win them back. They're saved. But what he wants to do is damage control so that they don't influence somebody else to come to the kingdom. Remember? That when they get saved, they've just taken on a brand new enemy that they haven't had before. His name's Satan. And he hates new Christians with a passion. He hates old Christians with a passion. Soul winning. And Jesus just did it naturally. Whether it was a woman at a well in the middle of the day, which was totally taboo, and Jesus said, I'm the Lord thy God. I don't answer to your man-made rules and regulations. This woman's lost, and I need to reach her. And boy, they, she, she kept wanting to throw up the fact that, oh, no, oh, no, but I worship, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not Baptist. Oh, I don't, I, I, I can't, I, 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 I,
I got to do a series of sermons here before long and bring up the top five or six objections that lost people throw at Christians so that we can learn them and you've all heard them and I can teach you how to work through them and get through them with the Word of God. So in it. Jesus just sat there so patient. You know, if I could tell y'all one thing to be with new baby Christians, please be as patient with them as Jesus was. You know, I've, I've been here for 40 years in the ministry. Older Christians tell me, we don't need them. They don't do this right. They don't do that right. Would you get your nose out of the air and be patient with them, please? Somebody was patient with you when you first got saved. Somebody overlooked your mistakes and your faults and your shortcomings to, to, to disciple you. You know, the patience is a fruit of the Spirit for a reason. Everybody thinks that's about patience. Patience, by the way, when you're driving, like say on Dixie Highway in Louisville, patience is what you despise in the person driving in front of you, but you admire the most about the person behind you. Not that kind of patience. How about being patient with new baby Christians when they goof up? If y'all have not understood that for the last year I have gone as a pastor into full discipleship mode, you're not getting it. Discipleship. Letting the kids have their own service and leading the service. That's discipleship. I know a lot of pastors who wouldn't do that. I have friends in the ministry who wouldn't do that. Oh, they're too important to give away four Sunday mornings a year. I'm like, they're too important not to. Church of Tomorrow is here today. Jack doing the announcements. I know it's not much. And Jack, I've been trying to give him more and more preaching opportunities. People, why, why is Brother Bob doing that? It's called discipleship. Me fading them increasing. Remember when Jesus said that? He said, I must decrease. John the Baptist said it to Jesus, I must decrease so that you can increase. And then Jesus later on in his ministry said, I must decrease so the Holy Spirit can increase. Because I'm leaving and he's coming. Hmm? If y'all don't understand, that's why I got Trevor has been called to preach. That's why I got him up here doing the welcoming part and doing the, the meet and greet part and all that. Discipleship. And y'all are sitting and looking at me, amen, 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 but y'all don't know how many times I get fussed at behind the scenes. You know what I do when they fuss? Man, I'm just like Barney Fife. I just grin and bear it. And glad I don't have a gun on the side of my hip because I shoot myself in the foot. <laughs> no, no. Oh, am I tempted. <laughs> And I'm demonstrating for them, Jim, <laughs> when you're tempted to look at stop it. <laughs> yeah, 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 no. <laughs> you know? Yes, they're going to make mistakes, but God bless them. They're in the game. They're in the battle. They're up front. They're leading. Statistics show beyond a shadow of a doubt that the number one Age group that we lose from the church and we lose them forever is between ages 16 and 24. They get that driver's license, pew, they're gone. And yet when they talk to them, they find out the number one reason they lost them is because they weren't made to feel part of the church. 
They had to sit there, but they couldn't take the offering. Ah, we don't have that problem here. They couldn't do the announcements and the meet and greet time. We don't have that problem here. They couldn't get up and use their talents for Jesus in the church. We don't have that problem here. Discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. The last thing I want to share as I close this morning about discipleship is this. Y'all have to understand, I had a lot of saints, older elderly saints, when I was a young pastor just starting out, who loved me, who stayed patient with me, who knew, went home and said, boy, that brother Bob's going to be okay someday, but he's a goober right now. And one of them was Miss Eula Mae Robertson, lived down there in McDaniels, Kentucky. Miss Eula Mae was 88 years old, and that was the saintliest woman I ever knew up until that time. She was just a spirit-filled little thing, little itty-bitty thing, great big old gigantic Coke bottles. But I had never met such a spirit-filled individual in my life. As her. She was the first one I met like that since Brother Bill Reed passed away. And I asked her one day, I said, Miss Eula... Can you tell me as a young pastor, what should I do that will influence church members the most throughout my ministry for as long as I'm a pastor? What do you think would be, give me your secret, what would be the number one way that I can demonstrate for my people what they should do? What do you all think she said? She said, preacher... Not only should you never be afraid to get up in front of a congregation and admit and confess your faults, but you should always be the number one person in your congregation who is repenting. I want to tell you something, folks. If y'all think that's comfortable as a pastor, it's not. Because most church people think pastors ought to be super Christians. Most people don't like it. They, they feel uncomfortable when the pastor gets up and says, Man, I blew it this week. I lost my temper on Dixie Highway. And I told somebody they were number one. In a nonverbal manner. I didn't do that this week. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you I've never done it because I have. <laughs> you know? And then sometimes Hoosiers come across the bridge. Oh, I'm joking. I'm teasing y'all. I know. I can't go there. I know. I can't. I forgot we got too many of y'all now. <laughs> Used to be just Jack. I got to chill on that now. Show your congregation. Admit your faults. I do that. I'll tell you in, each and every Sunday, this man standing right here is a sinner saved by God's grace just like you. Who, thank God, had... Very patient, spirit-filled Christians through the years who discipled him, who were patient with me. So what should I demonstrate to you? Patience. What are you showing people, not only in the church, but especially outside the church? What kind of actions do they see from you? Does it match up to what your words say?